answering some common questions uh, in, that relate to the, the, the way of Christ. And so the first Sunday, which was a couple weeks ago, I answered the question, is God knowable? Last Sunday I talked about, is the Bible reliable? And today I'm going to answer the question, to the best of my effort, are all religions equal? And so if you're new to our church, this is a different kind of series for us. Typically I try to take a passage of the Bible and just teach through it and, and uh, typically we call that a topic or whatever. But uh, this, is, this is a little bit more uh, feel of like a, a lecture or to get you to think um, in reasonable ways about the claims of Christianity. And this is a series for the curious unbeliever. If you're here, and the question for you would be, do you think it's possible for the claims of Christianity to be inspired by God? And uh, I've said a couple of times, and I'll say it again, my approach is not going to be to argue with you, because I'm not sure that that is productive. And if you want to argue, you're not going to connect with this. But if you're curious about why Christians submit themselves to the way of Jesus Christ and are willing to open their heart then maybe you, if you're willing to open your heart, then maybe you will be stirred in the same way that those that have crossed their line of faith have been. I've often wondered why the curious unbeliever would not accept the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. And as I think about it, it occurs to me that I really it boils down to fear. Fear can keep us from taking steps of faith. You might fear the unknown, and there's a lot of mystery we begin talking about who is God and who am I and what does he want for my life. You might fear the change in your own heart. You might fear the reaction of the people that are around you. So my encouragement to you today, if you're the curious unbeliever, is that you would not let fear keep you from experiencing the peace of life of Jesus Christ. The series is also for the believer. For the believer, it can strengthen your faith. And it will provide some reasonable arguments for you when you converse with those that do, do not share your faith. And we'll talk a little bit later about how we ought to have those kinds of conversations. But there are some of your unbelieving friends that think that your faith in Christ is based solely on your upbringing or your inability to think reasonable. There are many that do not share our faith in Christ and look at Christians and Assume that we're unaware or uneducated or naive to what's really going on in the world. But the reality is that it is reasonable to hear and respond to the good news of the Bible in such a way that you're willing to submit your lives to it, give everything for it. So my prayer for you this morning, if you're a believer, is that your faith be strengthened to the degree that you can have more confidence in God and the gospel that you claim. So I'm with those two groups addressed, I'm going to ask the question, are all religions equal? And before I do, I want to say that I do not like talking about this idea of Christianity in the category of religion. And the reason for that is because religion sounds to me like a list of rules to live by, right? Religion sounds a little something that's, that's, that's like institutional and highly controlled, but the way of Jesus is a movement. And it's more about a relationship with God than it is about a religion. Can I get an amen? I'm going to get y'all saying amen at some point during the year. 
So with that in mind, the question is, are all religions equal? So before I go on, I just want to pray and ask God to guide me and to guide you in this next few moments. God Almighty, we love you. And God, I stand before these dear men and women. More importantly, before you, O Lord, asking that you, by the power of your Spirit, help us to see what we cannot easily see. I pray, God, that you open our hearts, that you strengthen the faith of the believer. And God, that if you wanted this morning that some people would get to a place where they're willing to take a step of faith over into the way of Christ. And God, also, I just pray that you would kind of stir in this church an environment where it's okay to ask questions and to doubt and to have honest conversations about the things that you provide for us in the Bible that are difficult to wrap our minds around. So God, I trust you, I love you, and I just submit to you. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to start, when I begin answering this question, are all religions equal, by acknowledging that there are some commonalities between Christianity and other major world religions. Let's get this out on the table. You know that most major world religions have some moral teachings in common. Here are five of them. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Did you know that Christianity is not the only religion that teaches that? Another one. Don't kill, lie, steal, or covet. That that teaching is not only in in the Bible. It's another major world religion also. Another one. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Or how about this one? Love your neighbor. Conquer evil with love. All you need is love. And lastly, you reap what you sow. So there are some commonalities between Christianity and other world religions. And the reason I point that out is because there is a growing movement of people that would say that what we ought to accept for everyone is uh, what's common between all of these different religions. Maybe you've seen this image. I know I have, and I see it more and more. It's this idea that every different religion ought to be able to exist together and we could just all get along. The 14th Dalai Lama, as recorded in his book, A Human Approach to World Peace, says this, I maintain that every major religion in the world, Buddhism, Christianity, Confucianism, Hinduism, Islam, Jainism, Judaism, Sikhism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, has similar ideas of love. The same goal of benefiting humanity through spiritual practice and the same effect of making their followers into better human beings. All religions agree upon the necessity to control the undisciplined mind that harbors selfishness and other roots of trouble. It each teaches a path leading to a spiritual state that is peaceful, disciplined, ethical, and wise. It is in this sense that I believe all religions have essentially the same message. Differences of dogma may be ascribed to differences of time and circumstance as well as cultural influences. So therein is the argument that every different world religion is essentially the same thing. And what we ought to do is take the best of them 
and the things that are shared between them and live by those and the world would just be a better place. And I do actually think that if the world would live by this moral code, like, you know, the one where we say it's not okay to kill somebody or steal from somebody or to covet what somebody else has, the, the principle of you reap what you sow, the idea that love conquers all, if, if the whole world would live by this common moral code, don't you think the world would be a better place? Absolutely. Now, we do not believe that this is a convincing argument for the equality of all religions, and I'm going to discuss it more in just a moment. But I do think it gives evidence for the existence of God. Here is what we call the moral argument for God. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis argued that conscience reveals to us a moral law whose source cannot be found in the natural world, thus pointing to a supernatural lawgiver. So the common morality shared by most religions gives evidence for a moral designer. People are made in the image of God, and set in their conscience is a desire to live by this moral code, and it emerges in different ways through different religions throughout the world. It's a common set of standards. They are not enough to argue that all religions are the same, but they are evidence that there is a lawgiver, God himself. Now, with that, many would just be happy saying, well, there are many paths that lead to the top of the mountain. But can I just say this is intellectually lazy? Here's why. It is logically impossible for a person to say that every religion is right. Why? Because the teachings of several religions claim exclusivity. So you cannot say that Christianity is right if they want to be. And Islam is right. And Buddhism is right. We're all right because each of those claim exclusivity to the truth or the right way. And so I don't have time to really focus on the claim of Christianity and its exclusivity, so I will. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's pretty exclusive. John chapter 3, passage of Debbie River. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God... And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You cannot argue that Christianity works alongside every other world religion. You have to either reject or accept the way of Christ. You have to reject or accept the teachings of the Bible. So it is not only intellectually lazy, but it's filled with fear to just say, well, you can be right, and they can be right, and we can all be right, and let's all just get along. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. A number of years ago, 
the famous Muslim leader and world-renowned boxer named Muhammad Ali. I happened to meet with the brother-in-law of the famous evangelist Billy Graham. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the name Billy Graham. He's a world-famous evangelist. This is a brother-in-law by the name of Leighton Ford. And, and Leighton tells a story about meeting Muhammad Ali. And, and when Muhammad Ali found out that Leighton was Billy Graham's brother-in-law, Muhammad Ali was going on and on about how much love and respect he had for Billy Graham. And Leighton says that Ali says this. He says, I've traveled all over the world, and I've seen all different religions, and it seems to me that they're all saying the same thing. It's kind of like you have a river, and you have a lake, and you have a pond, and you have a stream, but they all have water in them, so they are all the same, aren't they? This is the argument that, that every world religion can be accepted as true. There are multiple paths up the same mountain. But in response, Billy Graham's brother-in-law, Lady Ford, says this, That's very interesting, but suppose you have all of them, and suppose they are all polluted. Jesus is the purifier. You see, this is the difference in Christianity from every other major world religion. It's that Jesus is the way to God. This is truly the most offensive claim of Christianity. And and the world will say this, Haven't we progressed beyond such narrow-mindedness in these modern times? Isn't claiming Jesus is the only way intolerant of other faiths? Well, those of you that are thinking with me, it's worth pointing out that claiming Christianity to be intolerant is in itself an intolerant claim. The logic fails. And do you know that we live in a day where tolerance is celebrated as the highest value? Many would like a world where every idea is accepted and celebrated as true, but it just does not work. Christianity squelches the idea of the quality of every idea or religion, so it offends a very high cultural value of tolerance. Christianity is either true or not true, and it is distinct in its claim from every other world religion, and that's what I want to talk about right now. And with this question... Upon what grounds does Christianity base its claim to be the only way to God? Now, I am going to have to, in this kind of line of reasoning, I'm going to have to refer to you to my sermon last Sunday where I made a case for the reliability of the Scriptures and why we trust that it is God's Word to us. Because if you're a thinking person, curious unbeliever, you're wondering to yourself, well, how can he end this uh, recent series, use the Bible as reference. Well, I talked about that last week, so I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast, and I don't think you want to hear that sermon again, but you can go listen to it. So we're, we're going to get to the place of we, as the church of Jesus Christ, trust that the Bible is inspired by God without error, and it reveals truths to us that are good for us and help us understand who God is, who we are, and what Jesus did, and why it matters. So the question, upon what grounds does Christianity base its claim to be the only way to God? Here it is. You are not perfect. No matter how hard you try, you'll never be able to live by the agreed-upon moral code. Because we could all say, hey, let's live in a world where it's only about love. We don't ever covet. We don't ever steal. We don't ever kill. We're never dishonest. We're always forgiving. Right? We could, we could say we want to live in that kind of a world, but not a person alive is able to do that perfectly. Not a person. 
So all of us are in debt to a holy God because of the ways we've fallen short of moral perfection. We can agree upon that the world would be a better place if we live by moral perfection. But can't we also agree that none of us are perfect? I'm not. And I don't think you are either. Here's the thing. God is holy. He's perfect. Without blemish. So something must be done to vindicate you from the punishment you deserve for your sins for you to be in a relationship with God. For God to accept you without some kind of payment for the debt that's made by your sins would, would, would tarnish His holiness. So something must be done for sin. You say, well, I can do it on my own. No, you can't. In fact, the Old Testament is an entire story of a group of people that had a list of rules. They tried to do it on their own, but they were unable to. And this is why Jesus came. Every other religion teaches that by being a good person, you can hold out hope that God will forgive you and you'll reach some kind of heavenly afterlife. And here's the thing. That's quite a motivator. It's quite a motivator for a religion to teach you if you will just do some good things, then you can have a little sliver of hope that God will accept you into His presence when this life is over. Islam has what's called the five pillars. Profession of faith, prayer five times a day, giving of alms, fasting during Ramadan, and a pilgrimage to Mecca. The book of Quran, chapter 5, verse 9, says, To those who believe and do good deeds of righteousness, Allah promised forgiveness, and a great reward. So the idea is if you believe and you do good things, a Muslim does the good things in hopes that Allah will forgive their sins and accept them into the heavens. But there's no real guarantee. Buddhism focuses on good works and hopes that a person will earn good merit and that at the end of their life they'll have a favorable rebirth until they become fully enlightened and reach nirvana, the end of rebirth. And I could go on talking about different religions, but my point is that every world religion emphasizes the need for a person to do good works if they want to have any hope for a relationship with God. Any hope of salvation is based on good works, of living perfectly by that moral code. But here's the thing. You'll never be able to do enough good works to pay your debts to God. You'll never be able to do enough good works to pay your debt to God for all of your mess-ups in your life. And a holy God cannot overlook them. If a holy God overlooked them, he would in fact not be holy. A just payment must be made. The good news of the Christian faith is that God has made a way for your sins to be forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus whose death on the cross pays for your sin. This is what distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. It's this idea of grace. Where grace means undeserved favor. God made a way for your sin to be erased that has nothing to do with how good or how bad you are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. It's grace. It's the free gift of God as a demonstration of love to you. The loving grace of God demonstrated by Jesus on the cross allows your sin to be forgiven without compromising His holiness. 
Your sin is erased. You have the guarantee of eternal life with God based on His merit in Christ, not your own good works. Is anybody with me? That's a good thing. That's an exciting thing. I mean, if you want to leave here and go about trying to earn salvation by doing a list of good things, go for it. People around you will probably really love you, but you know what they may not know is that you are imperfect. And apart from Christ, you're indebted to God. And you may live your whole life as a fairly good person, fairly well liked. But here's the thing. When you stand before Jesus at the judgment for your life, you will have to give an account for the times in your life that you screwed up. And you can say, oh, but I was good every now and then. Oh, I tried my best. And God says, not good enough. I am holy. You are unrighteous. And unless something is made to pay the penalty for your sin, you're deserving of the wrath of God and spending eternity in a place called hell. But God, being rich in mercy, according to Ephesians chapter 2, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's the thing, your sin doesn't just make you sick, you're dead. You're dead spiritually. It doesn't just make you a little off during the day. Your sin is the thing that demonstrates how in need of God's presence in your life you are, and you cannot manage it on your own. I mean, some of you are doing a great job of convincing everybody that you're a fairly perfect person. But here's what I know about every single person. Here's what I know about myself is that none of us are perfect. All of us need God to work in our lives. All of us need some outside supernatural transformation to begin helping us to be the kind of people God wants us to be. The first step is for us to cross over the line of faith. The Spirit of God gets in us, and when God sees us, He no longer sees us as unrighteous, indebted to Him because of our sin. He sees us as righteous, not because of our good works, but because of the good works of Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm dropping gold on you all right now. I don't know if you're with me. Paul goes on in Ephesians. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show him the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God has done something. This is what distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. And I feel the same pressure you do, and that is the pressure culturally for tolerance. I get it. But you cannot say, logically, that Jesus is the way, and the way of Buddha is the way, and Islam is the way. You cannot say that and be a reasonable thinking person. You can be a lazy person and say that, but you cannot say that and be an intellectually assertive, decisive kind of person. You you, you might say, okay, Russell, if it's true that it's not by our works that we receive salvation according to Christianity, then why in the world would a person do good works? That's a legitimate question, and I've had it posed to me before. It's the idea that if we take the pressure off of telling people that they have to do good things to earn salvation, then why in the world would they be motivated to do good works? Here's the thing. We do good works as followers of Christ, not for salvation, but in response to salvation. The more grateful we are for how God has raised us from our spiritual deadness to new life in Christ, the more motivated we are to live like Christ. And the easier it is. In fact, the Bible talks about it as being fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit is in you, certain things are born out of you. 
goodness and peace and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control and all these things that we would all say, yes, those are good things and the world would be a better place if more people did them. So the good works are an outpouring of the forgiven heart, not to earn salvation. Because you'll never be able to do enough good things. You know you. You know what you're like when you're tired and you're frustrated. Somebody's treated you wrongly. Sometimes we mess up. You, you can remember the times that you failed to obey God's commandment for sexual purity and sexual covenant. You know, it's so I. So there's no way we're going to be able to do good things to make up for those bad things. Not enough of them. And I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm just trying to be honest. You see, this is another thing about tolerance. Sometimes the thing that gets pushed out there is that the way that we love people is by never offending anybody. And I'm certainly not here to offend you. I love you and I want you to come back. However, the most loving, the most unloving thing I can do is be dishonest and misrepresent what God has clearly revealed in the Bible as true. So in fact, by being truthful, even if it offends you, even if it feels intolerant, by telling you the truth, that's the most loving thing I can do for you. The grace of God is the huge difference between Christianity and every other major world religion. So here's a question to you, curious unbeliever. Will you accept the free gift of God? If you do, your sin is forgiven. It's erased. You're reconciled to God. No longer are you an enemy of God, deserving the wrath of God because of your sin. You're freed up to do good works in response to the loving mercy and generous grace of God. No longer do you have to live with like, I don't know, I don't know how things are going, I don't know what's going to happen when I'm going to die. You can have confidence that you are guaranteed a reward, an inheritance, not because of your works, but because of Christ. And you say, what do I do? Here's what you do. Accept it. Cross over the line of faith. If you choose not to, then you're indebted to God. You will stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for your life. And once you're there, after you die, it is too late. So cross over the line of faith. Do it today. For the believers in the room, I hope this strengthens your faith. Some of you are feeling that cultural pressure to be tolerant and accepting of every idea about every single thing. I know you're feeling that pressure. Christians have felt it since the beginning of time. But you can be encouraged that your faith in Christ is reasonable and worth giving your life to. Be encouraged. Let your faith be strengthened. This is these ideas are from the scriptures, but we can use our reasonable thinking to argue for argue for the evidence of the truth of them. Believer also, just know that there are more helpful and less helpful ways to represent your faith among people who do not believe. This is where we screwed up. Christians have at times, with passion, spoken the truth, but it hasn't been in love, but it's been unloving and unkind and hateful and argumentative. I don't know about you. I have never gotten into an argument with somebody and then the result of it been them agreed with my initial idea. Never. 
I mean, I really don't argue with people anymore. Because it's, it just doesn't work. That there is a way of lovingly having conversations with people that's also an evidence of your ability to think and work and study the scriptures and thinking about these things. That way you don't just walk into these kind of conversations like, uh, I don't really know why I believe, but I do. And it's a joke to people. You can love somebody and have a loving conversation with people that do not share your faith with Christ. And here's the thing also. Not everybody's going to agree with you. And it's okay. Everybody just say it with me. It's okay. It is. You can still love them, be friends with them, serve them, care for them, work alongside them. Doing those things doesn't mean that you're somehow giving up on your own deep conviction that Jesus is the way to God. Um, not, not everybody's going to agree with you, but there's a, certainly a way to do it that's winsome and educated and compelling. And one last thing I'll say for the believers in the room. I have found that the greatest difficulty in, in terms of the spread of the Christian witness in the community is not the claim of Christianity. It's that there are some who claim the name of Christ whose lives do not represent Christ. It confuses people when you say, yes, I'm a Christian, and I, and yet you continue to hate. It confuses people when you say, yes, I'm a Christian, and you're stingy, and you're not generous. It confuses people when you claim the name of Christ, but yet you continue in ongoing, unrepentant sin. And all of us have areas that we struggle in sin. Okay, So this isn't about being morally perfect, because no matter how long you live, you will still struggle at some level of sin. That's a reminder that we need Jesus in an ongoing way. But if you leave these things in your life without finding accountability and finding healing and finding a detox, then it confuses people as to why in the world they would want to follow the way of Christ. There's a story about this African tribe that learned an easy way to capture ducks in a river. Catching their agile and wary dinner would be a feat indeed, so they formulated a plan. The tribesmen learned to go upstream, they placed a pumpkin in the river, and they let it slowly float down into the flock of ducks. At first, the cautious fowl would quack and fly away. They didn't know what that pumpkin was. It wasn't ordinary for them. But the persistent tribesmen would wait until the ducks came back and landed on the water, and they would float another pumpkin down the river. The regathered ducks would scatter again, but this time a little more slowly. The hunters would wait until they came back and landed on the water, and they would float another pumpkin. They would do this until the ducks quit flying off. What was actually a scenario that could really hurt them it become normal to them. And they floated a pumpkin down the river, and the ducks stayed. And they took these pumpkins, they hauled them out, they put them on their heads, and they used them to move into the, where the ducks are. And 
one by one, they just plucked him out of the river. It illustrates in some ways this idea of Christians who tolerate sin. We, we see it, we're scared of it, we know it's bad, but then we get used to it. We might even look around and see our fellow Christians giving into the same kind of area of sin. And we think, well, maybe it's not such a big deal. But here's the thing. The greatest threat to Christianity is not tolerance by Christians of other religions. Instead, it's tolerance of sin in our own lives. It hinders our witness and it keeps us from experiencing the peace of life with Jesus Christ. So here's what we ought to do. If we care about the claims of Christianity and its beautiful story and uniqueness among every other world religion, the thing we ought to do is ask God to continue transforming us, to identify areas of sin in our own lives, and to ask God to change them. For areas of addiction, we find freedom. For unhealthy patterns of behavior, we get help. If you claim the faith in Christ while at the same time live like the world, then the witness of Christianity is neutered. So you say, I do believe that the Christian way is the truth. I do believe that Jesus is what he says he is. He's the God-man. And he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father by, by him. Then here's the thing. If you do believe that, then chase after him and love him. Him, follow Him, and obey Him. And when we begin to do that, then we won't have to argue Christianity as the way over every other major world religion. Because the thing is, it will be so compelling to our unbelieving, curious friends. Christianity stands uniquely apart from every other major world religion because of grace. God forgives our sin through Christ, not because of our merit, but because of his love. And so let's respond to that by being the kind of people who, out of our awareness that God has done something special in our lives, live like Christ among other people. Let's think on and pray about these things. So if you're here and uh, you feel some compulsion in your heart to respond to God in this message of the gospel. You're a curious unbeliever. You say, what do I do? Here's simply what you could do. Just tell God what's on your heart. You could even say something like, God, I don't quite understand all this, but I know I'm not a sin forgiven, and I want to begin a relationship with Exchange whatever's in your heart with the Lord provides a step crossing over the line of faith where then you get to begin this wonderful experience of the peace of life with Christ. For the believer in the room, has your faith been strengthened? I hope so. Is there somebody in your life that you need to be more intentionally loving to? Someone that doesn't share your faith in Christ and maybe you've ignored or been annoyed by or argued with? Maybe there's a different way to have a conversation with them. 
and maybe most importantly, believers. It's an area of your life of ongoing, unrepentant sin. It's an area that you've just gotten used to being there, and you know it doesn't honor God. If there is, then here's what you do. You say, if you mean it, you say, God, forgive me. And you choose today what you're going to do about it. The first thing you do about it is you tell somebody. You submit your life to the accountability and discipleship that happened in the church. And then together we get to work out whatever difficulty you have. You don't have to do it alone. So what will your response be today? I'm going to leave these thoughts in your mind and we're going to have a brief time of response and sing. So would you do this? Would you stand to your feet? And we're going to sing the song of response. And then I'll come back up. Whatever you would like to do. If you want to pray during this time, please do so right where you are. I'll be up here in the front if you want me to pray with you. I'm happy to do that. If you want to stand there quietly, that's okay. But how will you respond today to what's been said?